turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to begin reading in verse 19. Verse 19. I, I've been, we spent the last several weeks, Russell preached one of the sermons, but we spent, spent the last several weeks in verse 19 through 25, which is one sentence. Today we move on to verse 26 through 31. Um, but really the whole section of Hebrews, so you know, is we've just gone through a long exposition from chapters 5 through 10, and now we're getting into an exhortation. Here's the doctrine of the gospel. So what? What difference does it make? Here's the application of that doctrine. And so we're in that section of application, really from verses 19 through verse 39. That whole section, we've been breaking it into chunks, but um, we will take verses 26 through 31 this morning. I, I'm mindful of the fact that as we come to verses 26 through 31, as you see it, um, it's, it's a passage on apostasy. And so it's, it's, it's a bit... Um, difficult pastorally for me to consider all week the fact that we're finally going to gather together on Sunday morning as one group and I'm going to talk about apostasy so encouraging so but it's what the Holy Spirit the text with which the Holy Spirit has presented us so it is the text that will be preached Hebrews 10 verse 19 therefore brothers since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. For... If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Let me pray. Father, we ask that as we consider this text, this sobering pastoral warning that the apostle has given us, 
that your spirit has superintended for us, not only for the Hebrew Christians of the first century, but for your church in every age. We ask that we would heed the warning. We ask that we would be humble. That we would never think this is just a warning for others and not for us. That we would know that we are weak sinners, prone to wander, prone to leave the God we love. That we need your Son to keep us, your Spirit to continue to cause our faith to persevere. We pray that as we hear this word, we would hear it as it is, the word of the Lord to his church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, Matt, when I'm going low is when we're getting the most feedback. Just Why would a pastor, why would a pastor who believes in the unmerited love and grace of God toward the members of his church, why would that pastor ever fear apostasy? If he believes in the unmerited love and grace of God toward the members of his church, why would he ever fear eternal damnation for the same members of that church? Why would a pastor who believes that Christ will save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him also be concerned about church members committing deliberate sin and being eternally damned. If God's people are eternally secure in Christ, and they are, then why are we commanded to persevere in the faith at the threat of our own eternal damnation? These are all questions I hope we're all together wrestling with. I think it's important that we understand that the answers to those questions are related to one another as means are related to ends. What do I mean by that? Let me give you an example. The Lord promises to provide you with everything you need. This promise. Jesus says, your father is good. He will give you what you need. He promises to provide you everything you need. Yet he also, the same Lord Jesus, commands you to pray, give us this day our daily bread. So your father knows what you need before you ask him. He will give you everything you need. Yet your father also commands you to pray, give us this day our daily bread. And when you don't have what you need, the Lord tells us it's because you failed to ask. And even when you ask, you ask with the wrong motives. The Lord provides all you need, and he provides that end, what you need, through the means of your prayers. How does that divine mystery work? I don't know. What I know is, the Lord provides everything you need, and he provides that end through the means of your prayers. The Lord saves you to the uttermost. The Lord keeps you in his mighty and inviolable grip. 
Yet he does that keeping of you, that preserving of you, that saving of you to the uttermost, through the means, through the means of commanding you to participate in particular Christian duties. Do you hear that? The Lord Jesus will never let go of a single sheep that is his. That's his promise. That's what he said. At the same time, the Lord keeps you through the means of commanding you to participate in particular duties. Look at Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. I want to remind you of what this sentence taught you. In verses 19 through 21, it teaches you what you have in Christ. What is ours? The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ her Lord. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the Holy of Holies by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is, through His flesh. In other words, that's the first thing we have. We have confidence to enter the Holy of Holies by the blood of Christ. We have that. It's ours. And since we have, verse 21, a great, and this is just another way of saying a great high priest over the house of God, we have the right to enter the Holy of Holies by the blood of Jesus. We have a great high priest over the house of God. So we have one who has made atonement for sins. He's covered all of our sins. It's all forgiven. We are wiped clean. Your sin is removed from you as far as the east is from the west. Jesus completed that work on the cross. We have that. We also have a great high priest over the house of God. In other words, the same Lord who saved us rose from the dead, ascended to the right hand of the Father, where he ever intercedes for us. He is constantly praying to keep us. We have that. Since we have that, those are, that's, if you will, the gospel doctrine. You have a priest who's made an offering for you that atones for all your sin, past, present, and future. You have a priest who ever lives to intercede for you. You have that. Since we have that, verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. See, let us draw near to worship him. Since we have that, let us draw near to worship him in faith. Since we have that, verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Keep holding on to him. Keep drawing near to him. Verse 24, since we have that, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together. Since we have that, be considerate of one another. Lovingly think of the other and pursue stirring them up, encouraging them to love and good works. See, since we have these things, let us pursue faith, hope, and love. Because these things are true. Because we have this gospel reality, we have these gospel duties. And these gospel duties are given to us to cause us to persevere in the faith to cause us to persevere in the faith. These are the means to the end that we might be saved to the uttermost.
Then we get this warning. Those gospel duties are what the Lord gives us as the means for us to persevere in faith. But if we fail to obey these commands, if we fail to employ the means of God's grace, the means of perseverance that God provides, then we're in danger of apostasy. To understand that, we're going to look at Hebrews 10, 26-31. Look at how Hebrews 10 starts. For if we go on sinning deliberately. He's making an intentional connection. He's making an intentional connection. This is the gospel truth you know. Here's the gospel doctrine. Here are the gospel duties, if you will, to persevere in the faith. And here's the warning if you don't take up those duties. Here comes the warning. So we're going to consider that, the nature of apostasy first. We're really going to consider this passage under three points. First, the nature of apostasy. Second, the punishment for apostasy. And third, the pastoral reason for the warning of apostasy. So the nature of apostasy, the punishment for apostasy, and the pastoral reason for the warning of apostasy. So let's look at the nature of apostasy. Let me begin with the definition. What is apostasy? Apostasy is the abandonment or renunciation of the faith. It's that simple. Apostasy is the abandonment or the renunciation of the faith. The abandonment or the renunciation of the faith can happen in word or in deed. It can happen in word or in deed. Think about it like any covenantal commitment. You love your wife. I'm committed by covenant to my wife. Now, I can abandon, I can apostatize that marriage covenant two ways. I can tell my wife, get lost. I want nothing more to do with you. I'm going to divorce you. That's one way. The other way I can abandon that marriage covenant is I can just, by deed, go about with other women. Turn away from the care of my wife and the exclusivity of the covenant. And I'm on the path to abandonment. The same thing is true with the covenant with the Lord. I can abandon it by word or by deed. What's the nature, though, of it? What does it look like to commit apostasy? Look at 1026. For if we go on in sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth. Now, what does he mean by this? The apostle is using an intentional phrase. If we go on sinning deliberately, what does that mean? I want to spend some time on that. The next part, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, you guys know what that means. After receiving or embracing the gospel doctrines, I have heard the gospel, I have professed faith in the gospel, I have probably been baptized into a gospel-preaching church, I have participated in membership in that church, I have participated in worship in that church, I have sat under the preaching of that church, I have participated in the Lord's Supper in that church, so I have embraced or received the gospel, the truth. Then he says this, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, that knowledge of the truth is more than just I know about it. It's I in some way have responded to it in some sort of joy and faith, which we'll look at in a minute. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth. So what does he mean by 
sinning deliberately. I ask that because most of us, when we think about our sin, we think, it's pretty deliberate. Right? Like, rarely do I sin accidentally. Oops! Didn't mean to lie. Didn't mean to act that... We pretty much see all of our sin as deliberate sin, right? And appropriately so. I don't know that the translation here is particularly helpful when they say, if we go on sinning deliberately. The idea here is is the idea of continual, high-handed sin among those who have already received the gospel truth. What what do I mean by high-handed sin or continuous, deliberate sin? This idea is really being taken from the book of Numbers. So look at Numbers. Keep your hand there in Hebrews 10 and look at Numbers chapter 15. If you're not familiar with your Bibles, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. It's the fourth book. If you're at Deuteronomy, you've gone too far. Numbers chapter 15. It's exactly what the apostle here is leaning upon in this description. And look at verse 27. Verse 27. If one person sins unintentionally, again, I don't love the the translation unintentionally. We'll spend some time on that in a minute. If one person sins unintentionally, he shall offer a female goat a year old for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement before the Lord for the person who makes a mistake when he sins unintentionally. Again, I don't love that translation because none of us think about our ongoing sin as mistakes that are made unintentionally. But I want you to hear what they're getting at. If the priest shall, and the priest shall make atonement for the Lord for the person who makes a mistake when he sins unintentionally to make atonement for him and he shall be forgiven. You shall have one law for him who does anything unintentionally, for him who is native among the people of Israel and for the stranger who sojourns among them. But the person who does anything with a high hand, whether he is a native or a sojourner, reviles the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from among his people. That is a cutting off from a covenant because he has despised, notice this language, why? Because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment. That person shall be utterly cut off. His iniquity shall be on him. The sin with a high hand, the sin with a high hand is the sin of someone who knows God's word and despises it. Someone who is a part, in this case, of the covenant church community. They're there. They're a part of the community. They, in this case, would have been present in Exodus 24 when the blood of the covenant was put on them. And they said, we will do all the words of this law. And now, they're sinning with a high hand. They're despising the word of the Lord. It's the sin of the person who knows and claims to believe in God's covenant promises, but then who unrepentantly, boldly, and habitually sins. The priests under the old covenant made atonement for the unintentional sins of the people. The unintentional sins, another way of translating this, 
the sins that were not high-handed, not continuously bold and unrepentant, the sins of those who do not despise the word of the Lord. Um, the priest of the Old Covenant made atonement for the unintentional sins of the people. Look at Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9, you'll see this language picked up there. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 6. Speaking of Old Covenant worship in the tabernacle, they made preparations in verse 6. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties, but into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. Unintentional here does not mean, oops, that was an accident. It's not what it means. The unintentional sins of the people is the sin of someone who trusts the Lord, but who is in the battle, and who sometimes loses the battle. It's the person that you read about in Romans 7, when Paul reflects on his own struggle. So turn to Romans 7 and look at verse 15. Keep your hands in Hebrews 10 still. Romans 7 and look at verse 15. You all will know this experience. Verse 15. For I do not understand, here's the Apostle Paul talking, I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Unintentional sins. You want to know what it looks like? There it is. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh. For I have a desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I'm, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. Now, if we stopped there, we would still be a little concerned about our outcome. Thus, Paul goes on in chapter 8 and says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We battle against our own sin. That's what he means by the unintentional sins of the people. But the sin that we fight as true believers is not high-handed sin. Our sin is not continuous, deliberate sin that comes after receiving 
the gospel truth. The deliberate sin being discussed in Hebrews 10.26 is the sin of those who reject the gospel doctrine by our deeds or our words. This is the sin of those who have rejected the gospel in their hearts and thus have no interest in keeping the commands. In verses 22, let us draw near with true hearts. Or 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Or verse 24, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as we see the day drawing near. Now, how do I know that? How do I know that's the person he's talking about? Look at Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 27. In other words, how do I know that's what he's saying in verse 26? Look at verse 27. Or verse 26 and 27, sorry. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. There is no atonement for that person. But a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the what? The adversaries. How do I know that the high-handed person is the person who has heard the truth, received or embraced the truth, and now rejected the truth in life or in doctrine, in speech? How do I know that? Because they're being addressed as the adversaries. They're the adversaries. They've turned against the Lord. They're the people who have turned against Christ and his church. It's an absolute rejection of the gospel, either in life or in confession. Look at Hebrews 10.29. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has... Now notice what this person has done. Spurned the Son of God. And has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. And has outraged the Spirit of grace. These are the people who have spurned the Son of God. In other words, they have rejected the person of Christ. They have literally trampled him under their feet. That's who we're describing here. This apostate person is someone who has rejected the Son of God. They've rejected the person of Christ. Further, they are the people who have rejected the work of Christ. They've rejected his person. They've rejected his work. How do I know that? They have counted what they has they have profaned or counted as profane or counted as unholy the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified these people have not only trampled underfoot Jesus like in Hebrews 6 crucifying the, to themselves once again the son of god they've not only done that they've rejected his work they've called the holy blood of Christ which atones for their sin common, profane, unholy. Now is the person who's sanctified here, by which he was sanctified, is it, speaking of, um, this word sanctified is the word for consecration, really. Is it speaking of the person who was consecrated into the visible body of the church by baptism, um, you know, membership, communion, etc.? 
That's how the word is being used in Hebrews 10, 10 and Hebrews 10, 14. So in the most immediate context, it's being used that way. Maybe that's what it's speaking of. It could also be speaking of Christ's consecration by the blood of the covenant as he set himself apart with his own blood. That's how it's used earlier in the book of Hebrews. Frankly, scholars are split. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter. Why doesn't it matter? Either way, the point is, these people have rejected Christ's work. They've rejected Christ's work. They, these are the people who have rejected further the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Look what it says. And has outraged the Spirit of grace. They've rejected the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The person of Christ has been trampled underfoot. The work of Christ, the blood of the covenant, has been called unholy, profane. And the work or ministry of the Holy Spirit who's come to apply Christ and his work to you has been outraged. They've outraged the Holy Spirit. They've rejected his work. These are the people who heard the gospel and in some way responded with temporary faith and joy. With temporary faith and joy. Look at Matthew 13. Keep your hands there in Hebrews 10. And look at Matthew 13. We'll look at the parable of the sower. Now, I'm not going to read the whole parable. You know um, the parable most likely. A man goes out to sow seed. That seed is the word of, the, of God or the gospel. And he, see, he sows that seed on four different soils. And it describes what happens with the seed sown on the four different soils. And the apostles come in and say, we want you to explain this to us. So Jesus does. Look at verse 18. Hear then the parable of the sower, Matthew 13, verse 18. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom, that's the gospel, and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. In other words, this is the person who never receives the good news of the kingdom. They hear it. Their ears are so deaf, their eyes so blind, their hearts so hard that it's just like hitting a glass wall. It never penetrates. They just reject it outright. But continue on, verse 20. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word. Now note this, and immediately receives it with joy. Yet... He has no root in himself, but endures for a while. He has temporary faith. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. This is a person with temporary faith who falls away. Persecution arises on account of the word. That's precisely what's happening in the book of Hebrews, isn't it? Persecution is arising, suffering is arising because of the word of God being preached. And this person with temporary faith falls away. Verse 22, as for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word. In some way, this person receives it as well. But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. This is the person, they don't walk away because of persecution. One person has temporary faith. They don't want to, they can't take the heat. So they, they bail. This other person is a person who is so in love with the things of this world 
that their faith shows to be temporary and not true faith. They like Jesus for a little while, but they love the world. So they run after it. As for what was sown on good soil, verse 23, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, in another 60, and in another 30. Here's the point. Only one of those soils is true faith. Only one is called the good soil, and only one bears fruit in keeping with repentance. So really you have two kinds of soil. The soil of true faith, where the Spirit has done the work, and they bear fruit in keeping with repentance, and these other varieties of unbelievers, some of whom have temporary faith, some reject it outright, and of those two with temporary faith, some reject the word eventually because they don't want to deal with persecution and suffering. Some reject it because they love the world. Either way, they have temporary faith. This is the false professor who may be baptized, who may look like the real deal for a time, but who eventually becomes apostate. This is the person who in many ways looks like a believing church member. Many ways. Look at Hebrews chapter 6. Hebrews chapter 6, a parallel passage to chapter 10 that we're dealing with now. Hebrews chapter 6, and look at verse 3, or excuse me, verse 4. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, and he's describing the person with temporary faith, who's been enlightened, he's seen the truth, who have tasted the heavenly gift. They have a taste of the heavenly gift, and I believe here the heavenly gift is Jesus himself, who has been given to us from heaven, maybe the Holy Spirit. Either way, he's tasted it, but not consumed it. Tasted the heavenly gift, have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted again, but not consumed, the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop to those, useful to those for whom's sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. They appear like one of us. They are among us. They have temporary faith, but they are really not one of us. That's what he says in 1 John, 1 John in chapter 2 and verse 18. Children, it is the last hour. By the way, that was said nearly 2,000 years ago. So if somebody comes to you and says, I think it's the end times, you're right. John told us that almost two millennia ago. It's the last hour, in fact. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us. Listen, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. They had temporary faith. This is the apostate. That is why it is pastorally derelict 
to tell someone, since you've prayed the prayer, once saved, always saved, you know you're going to heaven now. That's pastorally derelict. That's just trite and unhelpful. While it's true that once someone is saved, they cannot be lost, that's true. It is not true that you know who those folks are. And therefore you can say to them, I know for certain you're going to heaven. You don't know if someone has temporary faith or saving faith. You don't know. These two kinds of faith may appear the same for a time, but they're of completely different kinds. One perseveres and bears fruit in keeping repentance. The other falls away. Listen, I'm down at Radius sometimes, and the students ask me, how do, how do you have assurance of salvation? And we'll deal a lot more with assurance of salvation next week in the passage that comes up. But how, how, do, you, how do you know you're not lost? One of my answers I give them, they always look at me with this blank stare and say, my church hasn't excommunicated me yet. <laughs> what? That gives you assurance? Yes. Because if I wasn't bearing fruit in keeping repentance, if I was rebelliously, unrepentantly, high-handedly sinning, I would expect that you all would excommunicate me. So if you haven't excommunicated me yet, if you don't do that, you're failing to do your job. But if you haven't excommunicated me yet, then I have a little bit of assurance. <laughs> it's not the only reason. It's not the only reason. We'll talk more about that next week. Here's the question. What's the punishment for those with temporary faith who commit apostasy? What's the punishment to those with temporary faith who commit apostasy? That's our second point. It'll go faster than the first one. Don't worry. The punishment for apostasy. Look at Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. But what remains? A fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversary. Christ did the final work of atonement. He paid it all. He paid it all. There's no more sacrifices coming. If you have rejected him, if you have rejected his work, if you have rejected his spirit in word or deed, there's nothing left for you except wrath. There is no coming Savior to atone for you in the future. Atonement was made in Christ at the cross. If you turn from him, there's nothing left but wrath. The only thing left for you is the unmitigated wrath of God. You're turned over to merciless wrath. You face the eternal consequences of eternal conscious torment in hell. That's what he says when he says, a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Look at Hebrews 10, verse 28. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses, see, under the old covenant, if you set aside the law of Moses under the old covenant, 
anyone who set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? Here's what he's getting at. Under the law of Moses, under the old covenant, if you violated God's law, you would die without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. This is talking about the death penalty. Um, Keep your hand there and look at Deuteronomy 17. He's pulling off of Deuteronomy 17 here. Um, So look there, Deuteronomy 17 and verse 2. If you don't know your Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, fifth book. If you get to Joshua, you've gone too far. Deuteronomy 17 and verse 2. If there is found among you, among you, the people of God, if there's found among you within any of your towns that the Lord your God is giving you, a man or woman who does what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God in transgressing his covenant and has gone and served other gods and worshiped them or the sun or the moon or any of the host of heaven, which I have forbidden, and it is told you and you hear it, then you shall inquire diligently. And if it's true and certain that such an abomination has been done in Israel, then you shall bring out to your gates that man or woman who has done this evil thing, and you shall stone that man or woman to death with stones. On the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. Now catch this last part. The hand of the witnesses shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. That language, by the way, is picked up by Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 in talking about excommunication. Think about what Jesus says in Matthew 18 about excommunication. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. If he repents... You've won your brother, right? If he listens to you, you've won your brother. If he does not listen to you, take two or three others along. That every fact may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And if he doesn't listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to the church, let him be a tax collector or Gentile. That language of the two or three witnesses, understand, when you're the two or three witnesses and you're bringing it to the church, You're the first picking up the stones to give them their summary death. And that death sentence is excommunication, which is far worse than physical death. Far worse than physical death. This idolater, Deuteronomy 17 says, shall be put to death. He has transgressed God's covenant, and he's run after wickedness. Thus witnesses shall testify, and they shall be the same who pick up the stones and begin the death penalty. If physical death is the penalty for violating the Mosaic Covenant, how much worse punishment will God mete out upon those who've trampled underfoot the Son of God, who've called unholy the blood of Christ? the blood of the covenant, who've outraged the spirit of grace. 
Look at Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 30. For we know, verse 30, for we know him who said, vengeance is mine, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. God's vengeance will be meted out upon him. He will judge his people. This is the language, by the way, it's taken from Deuteronomy, where God promises to destroy the enemies of his people. And now it's being applied to his people. Here, here's essentially what he's saying is this. If I am just and will avenge my holiness against the, those sinners outside, how much more will I avenge my name against those who had every advantage of hearing the gospel and being in the church and still rejected Christ. How much more? It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Listen, friends, God is not to be taken lightly. God is just. He will come in terrifying wrath against all those who reject his son. He will condemn you to the chains of outer darkness where the fire is never quenched and where the worm never dies, where you will feel eternally the darkness and hatred and despair and loneliness and depression and anxiety and utter terror of his wrath. And you will experience that forever. That should cause you to shudder. It should cause you to flee to Christ. It should cause you to want to immediately say, thank the Lord for Jesus Christ and what I have in him. Let me draw near in a true heart and full assurance of faith. Let me hold fast the confession of my hope without wavering. Let me consider how to stir up others to love and good works, not neglecting the meeting of the saints. And even more, as I see the day drawing near, it should cause you to employ the means of grace God has given you. And that leads to my final point, really. What is the pastoral reason for this kind of warning of apostasy? Why would a pastor do this? Why does a pastor, a pastor who is utterly committed to the unmerited love and grace of God in Christ, give this kind of warning? He does so for two reasons. Because he knows us and because he knows God. Do you hear that? Two reasons. He knows us and he knows the Lord. He knows us. Look at verse 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately. That's interesting. Note the pronoun. If, for if we. He includes himself. The apostle who's writing includes himself here. If we go on sinning deliberately. Even if I go on sinning deliberately. He remarkably includes himself in the warning. Let me be warned. He knows us because he knows himself. We know, right, that we're weak. We know that. Prone to wander. We sing it. Prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. 
We know that we are incapable of persevering without the means that God has given. We're capable of it. We know that our faith is only true if it's faith that is a gift of the grace of God, and we know that true God-given faith perseveres. And what he is saying is, if you don't employ the means of grace, be warned, this could be you. Look at Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12. Oh, excuse me, chapter, chapter 3, I apologize. Chapter 3 and verse 12. Take care, brothers. Take care, brothers. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For, it, for we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. See, we need to continue to help one another by appointing one another to Christ. We need to be careful regarding ourselves and others in the body. We must never become prideful enough to think that we are permitted to lapse in our diligence to make our calling and election sure. We must never fall prey to the false notion that we can walk away from the Lord for a time, that we can become spiritually lazy for a time, and that we will not become apostate. We don't know that about ourselves. We must take care. That's why Paul says what he says in Galatians chapter 6. I just want you to hear this. You don't have to turn there. Galatians chapter 6 is what he says. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ for if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing he deceives himself see we need to be sober minded and, and always know but for the grace of God there go I when you see someone under church discipline you ought to think but for God's grace, I would be facing the same. When you see someone who has abandoned the faith, you ought to think, but for God's grace, I would be doing the same. This pastor knows them because he knows himself. And so he warns them, don't, I'm going to sound like Journey now, don't stop believing. <laughs> <laughs> Don't stop holding fast. Don't stop loving one another and gathering together. He knows them, so he warns them. He also knows the Lord. He doesn't just know them, he knows the Lord. Look at Hebrews 10 and verse 30. Hebrews 10 and verse 30. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I'll repay. 
We know him. We know him. We know the Lord. We know he is a just God. We know he is terrifying in his wrath. We know he's not to be taken lightly. We know him. We know he is holy, 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 and the whole earth is full of his glory. We know him. We know that when we see him as he is, we will, like Isaiah, say, Woe is me, for I am undone. Literally, I am disintegrating. I am coming apart at the seams. Why? For I am a man of unclean lips. That points to his heart, because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And I dwell among a people of unclean lips. This pastor knows the people, and he knows the Lord. He loves God's people, and he loves the Lord. He does not want them to cease believing the gospel doctrines, nor obeying the commands that he gave to nurture them in grace. Now, he does not stop with a warning. In Hebrews 10, he doesn't stop at the warning. He continues on to encourage them. Look at verse 32, and we'll see this more next week. Verse 32 of Hebrews 10. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. So he's going to go on to encourage them. He does the same thing in chapter 6. Beloved, after the warning, beloved, concerning you, I believe better things. We're going to look at that more next week, but today what I want you to point out, I want to just point out what he's doing pastorally. His point is not that he suspects the church of apostasy. The apostle's not saying, I suspect that you Hebrew Christians are going into apostasy. He's not saying that. His point is that he does not want the church to become arrogant, thinking that they cannot likewise be tempted, nor to become lazy, thinking that they do not need to work at growing in holiness. With that said, I, I do want to address a question that may loom large for some of you. Perhaps you've been sinning deliberately in a high-handed way. Perhaps you have family or friends who have done so or been doing so. You or your loved one looks apostate from everything you can see now. Perhaps they've been excommunicated from the church. Perhaps they've walked away and denied the faith. And perhaps you have this question. Is there any possibility for me or for them to be saved? Is it possible that I or they have true saving faith? doesn't look like it right now. Is it possible? Let me say this. True believers, true believers do fall into grievous sin, which often looks akin to apostasy, but ultimately is not apostasy. 
It's ultimately not. Their apostasy can even go as far as excommunication from the church. If that weren't true, then there would be no commands about how to restore those who were excommunicated, but who are now repentant, like we read in Galatians 6, like we, let read, like we could read if we did had time in 2 Corinthians 2. Further, if it was not true that someone can look apostate for a time and then be restored, we would not read about Christ's restoration of the Apostle Peter. Not read about it. Think of Peter and Judas, who both rejected the Lord at the end of his life. Both of them at the end of his life. They rejected him. They both looked like apostates at the cross, didn't they? One betrayed him, the other denied him three times. I don't know him. I don't know him. I do not know him. What was the difference between them? What's the difference between them? Jesus told Peter, here it is, Jesus told Peter, I have prayed for you, and you will repent. Peter did repent. Judas did not. And what was the difference that brought about that repentance in Peter and not in Judas? Their faith, when they walked with Jesus, looked the same, didn't it? They were both apostles, spending time with him for three and a half years. Their apostasy at the cross looked similar, didn't it? Both rejecting and denying him. So what was the difference between the two of them? The grace of God in giving Peter true faith. That was the difference. Listen to what Jesus said to Judas. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe, when you hear woe, that's cursed. But woe to that man by whom he's betrayed. Jesus cursed Judas in his high-handed sin. Listen to what Jesus said to Peter. Simon, Simon. That's what he also called him. Simon, Simon, behold. Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, when you have turned again, when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Jesus blessed Peter with persevering faith so that his faith did not ultimately fail. And thus Peter, seeing his sin, repented. The difference is the grace of God. Now, why do I bring that up? Because it's important that you realize how hope-giving that is. God graciously does all his holy will for his people. Your sin or the sin of your family members or your loved ones may look like apostasy now. But if you're here and this is you, the Lord is calling you home. Turn back to him and trust him. His grace is sufficient for you. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation, the wrath bearer 
for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Turn back to him. For those of you with loved ones who've walked away from the Lord, the sin of your loved ones may look like apostasy now, but as long as they have breath, it is not too late. It is not too late. Don't give up. Pray to the Lord. Plead with the Lord for them. Reach out to them. Wait on the Lord for them. Here's what I want you to understand. The Lord has his ends, and he has his means. And his means to that end of their salvation is your prayer. The Lord Jesus hears your prayers. He hears you. And he's pleased to save. You have only to ask him and trust him. Let me pray.